wonderful. We're going to turn to the Bible together, and uh, if you don't have one with you and you'd like to borrow one so that you can follow, we have some available. All you need to do is raise your hand, and the girls will bring a Bible to you. Would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5? Romans, chapter 5. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Just to apologize at the outset that I am currently suffering the mother and father of all colds. And uh, it's that stage where you don't know whether to just die now or sort of live through another day. So if my voice is a bit rough, it's because I've decided to live through another day. So here in chapter 5, Paul comes now to what he always intended to start into, but back in chapter 1, he made a great statement when he said, I'm not ashamed, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then he says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And he makes that statement. The gospel is about righteousness from God. And he's aware that people are going to then ask some questions. Why do we need righteousness? What's so important about that? And why do we need it from God? Can't we produce it ourselves? And so from verse 17 in chapter 1 through to this point, he's been answering those questions. Why do we need righteousness? Well, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness. That's why we desperately need righteousness. And can we produce it ourselves? No. There is no one who is righteous, no one who is without sin. Everyone has sinned. Well, how then does righteousness come from God? And he set out what God has done in giving his son our substitute, taking our sin, punished in our place, so that our sin is dealt with and his righteousness is given to us and it's received simply by faith. We can't produce it. We can't earn it. It is simply given to us. So he's explained all of that in these chapters and then here he picks up again what he started to say there in chapter 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, in other words, made righteous, Through faith, simply receiving it by believing, we have peace with God. But the first word in this chapter is a very important word. 
I've battled a bit this week in looking at this passage because I, I couldn't really get past that first word. And I thought to preach this morning on the word therefore might cause people to laugh at me, and I'm sensitive. <laughs> Just to preach on one word, you think, well, that's a bit excessive, but I, and I'm not going to, as far as I'm aware, we'll see where we go. But it's such an important word. This is Paul's normal method, you see. He sets out some truths. He makes great statements, and then he says, therefore, and he looks at the implications. So he's doing it here. He's going to do it again uh, in chapter 12, notably, when he's come to the end of talking about how wonderful this gospel is, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There are implications of what we're looking at. And uh, also in his letters to the Galatians, he do, uh, to the Ephesians, rather, he does exactly the same. He has three chapters setting out God's master plan, the plan that God devised before creation, that is then worked out in history. He sets the whole thing out, and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, or therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The ESV has the word therefore, quite rightly in this case. It's, these are the implications of what God has done. And unless we look at the therefore, truth may be fascinating, but it's irrelevant. Unless we look at implications, we just get hold of some doctrines, but in terms of real life, it's all irrelevant. In other words, we can listen to stuff on a Sunday, but Monday, real life clicks in. Monday through to Saturday, that's real life. And then on Sunday, oh, we start remembering this kind of stuff again. If we don't look at the therefore, really, what's the point? It's my conviction that at the end of every message, every time we hear someone preaching, the right response is for you to sit there thinking, well, so what? Very important question. So what? What does it lead to? What are the implications of it? What do I do about it? Otherwise, we just hear truth. Like we heard prophecy this morning. Well, so what? What do we do about it? That's the important thing, what follows through. James says something about this uh, in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, he says, and doesn't do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, hopefully, you're staying for lunch with us afterwards. Imagine after lunch, you glance at yourself in the mirror and see you've got food on your chin. And you think, oh, I've got food on my chin. And you just do nothing about it. Then all afternoon, maybe you walk down the road, people turn and look at you, mutter, but you just go blithely through the rest of the day. You've seen it on your chin, but you haven't done anything about it. Plainly stupid. And that's how it is if we hear God's word, say, oh, that's what it says. 
and then we do, don't do anything about it. Stupid. That's what James is saying there. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's, it's for acting on. It's for believing. It's for saying, therefore, so what? Well, so this. Otherwise, it's as stupid as seeing you've got food on your chin and just leaving it there. Absolutely mad. Paul also addresses this thing, or he says something that's relevant to it in his second letter to Timothy, which says something that I think is very relevant to society as it is to today. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And he describes some of the features of these last days. And among the things he says there, there are people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. He goes on to speak about those who are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. It's generally recognized, particularly in the, the sphere of education, that times have changed. We're living in a day when information has never been so freely available. Students have computers. Go on the internet. Information is freely available. And one of the difficulties is that students, I'm told, find it hard now to sit down and read a book from start to finish. Because all the information is there on the internet. You just get bits and pieces of stuff. And freely available, but what is thought through? What is worked through? And that's a problem, I gather, in the whole area of, of education, but it's certainly also a problem in the church. There can be a kind of information overload. So, go on the internet. You can familiarize yourself with everything that is currently being said by the preachers who are really sort of the people to listen to now. So I won't reel off the names, but those of you who are into this stuff, you'll know all the names that people are currently checking out. You can know, well, you can know what Driscoll is saying about this or that, what Keller is saying. Maybe you'll listen to this this morning, then see what John Piper had to say about it, and I won't really compare, but they, you can look at all of this. And no harm, of course, in looking at that, but the problem is you can be ever-learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. You're getting hold of all this information, but what is actually being built into your life? What, it, what actually changes real life? Nothing it gets applied. It's just we know what they all say. And sometimes it's not joined up at all. So we listen to preachers who are totally different from each other, but it's just unconnected truth. It happens in education. It certainly happens in the church. Unconnected truth that is not processed and in terms of preaching, not acted on. There will be terrible times in the last days, Paul says. Having a form of godliness. It's really godly, isn't it, to sit at the computer and check out all these preachers. That's wonderful. But what's happening in your life? Is it being formed in you? Is it just information or is it formation? Jesus also addressed this thing in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, very familiar passage. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The issue there is not what is heard, but what is done about what is heard. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, like building on rock. So someone who hears lots of words but doesn't do it is building on sand. In other words, you can build on sound doctrine and at the same time build on sand. Very sound doctrine, but not acted on, it's sand. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine, you don't get sounder teaching than that. Never mind what the big name preachers are saying, this is Jesus. Everyone who hears these words of mine doesn't put them into practice building on sand. It's not who you listen to. It's what you do about it. It's not what you're you're getting in from all over the place. It's what's actually happening in our lives. Paul is very careful when he's setting out truth to then come to this important word, therefore, or well, so what? What do we do about it? What is it going to lead to? Otherwise, we're just hearers. That's one of the reasons, or one of the main reasons, why midweek we have what we call core groups. The object of the core group is to actually look at what are the implications of that? What are we going to do about it? We heard it on Sunday. Now, how do we act on it? It's not just so we have a discussion. It's not so that uh, we comment, well, do you know what Piper said about it? Or do you know what... No, it's not about all of that. It's about how do we do it? How do we apply it? How does that change Monday? How does it change my, my work life or whatever? How do we implement it? Therefore, is a very important word. What can happen, of course, is that we hear things but we just wait until we feel something. So we listen to words, and we can say, yeah, it kind of left me cold, or it didn't do anything for me. Alternatively, you can say, oh, he's really preaching up a storm today. I really enjoy that wonderful preach, as the saying is. I hate that word, a preach. Pre- preaching is what you do. Anyway, won't get it, won't rant. I'll leave it to the other guys to do that. Anyway, <coughs> We, we, can, we can go by the feeling. What do I feel about it? Is it doing anything to me? That's not the issue. The issue is, is it true, and therefore what do I do about it? It's not, is it doing anything for me? Am I going to do anything about it? We don't have to wait for our feelings. We're, so often Christians are governed by their mood. You know, something is worth acting on if you're feeling in a good mood. If you're feeling in a bad mood, then truth somehow evaporates. It's one of the difficulties, if I dare say this, it's about one of the difficulties about the fact our church program means that on a Friday evening, it's a Friday evening, we have a prayer meeting. Friday evening, been at work all week, maybe had a few late nights through the week, you arrive at the end of the week, it's the prayer meeting. Now, with all good intention, you come... But what's your mood? The mood can be, I'm tired. I'm really tired. And so we're there, but praying and stirring ourselves to pray, mood-wise, don't feel like, what's the truth? What's the truth? The truth is 
that Jesus, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, has opened the way for us to come to the Father. The truth is that he has given us his Holy Spirit. The truth is, and always has been, the flesh is weak, but the Spirit is willing. And God is available for us to come to him. That's truth. Our mood might be, don't feel like it. But the truth is that we can come. We need to act, see the truth and see, therefore, so what? I'm going to act on truth. Never mind my feelings, never mind my mood. My moods will always lead me astray. My feelings can lead me astray. But what's the truth? Paul has carefully set out some truth here. He said, for example, about God's wrath revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Well, so what? So what? What conclusions do we draw from that? God's anger revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness. Therefore, you see, there are obvious implications. He's going to go on to speak about the wonderful grace of God, the wonderful love of God. We've got to remember God is a holy God and he hates sin. That's the reason for the cross. So, what does that lead to? Well, it's got to lead to a certain care about how we live, but also a massive concern for people who have never heard the gospel. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness. It's not just a doctrine that we discuss, I'm not sure about the wrath of God. I'm, I, I don't understand this. We can discuss it, discuss it, discuss it. But what about the implications of truth? It's not talking about it. It's doing something about it that really matters. Therefore, we've heard in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, therefore, what conclusions do we draw? How does that change the way we live? We've read that we are justified freely through his grace. So, well, that is what Paul is going to be looking at here in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, so, well, the first implication is we have peace with God. There is a therefore to this. And the therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. This is the point he's been establishing since chapter 1, verse 17. How can we be right with God? Well, only because of what Jesus did. Only because of his death and resurrection. Suffering in our place, punished where we deserve to be punished. God accepting the sacrifice of his son. Raising him up to show we are justified. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Raised to life for our justification. Now by faith, by believing that, I'm right with God. Justified through faith. So, we have peace with God. This is the basic gospel. No one has ever been good enough for God. We need to be justified through faith. That's the thing he's been talking about. That's what we need to be clear on. Some people seem to think that in, as God at the end looks at our lives, kind of the, the good will balance out the bad. That's what people kind of, if they think anything about God, if they think anything about judgment, they just shrug and say, well, hopefully the good will balance the bad. 
That is a huge mistake. Let's suppose that today, because it's Sunday, let's suppose today I am perfect. Right through the day, the moment I get up, the moment I get to bed, it's Sunday, God's day, perfection. Unlikely, but let's, let's suppose. Tomorrow is Monday. That's my day off. Ah. So maybe tomorrow things might slip a bit. Perfect through today, but tomorrow slips. Then, hopefully, then my perfection today balances out the imperfection of Monday. No, because the perfection of today is only what God required anyway. There's no goodness left over to balance out tomorrow. If I'm perfect today, that's only how I should have been. There's nothing, no excess of goodness that can be sort of, sort of a, a balance to go over to. No, we cannot ever please God. And none of us is ever going to be perfect anyway. We need a saviour. We need what Jesus has done. So no one can be good enough, but the grace of God has been demonstrated in that God set forth his son to be the one who bore his wrath in our place so that we can be forgiven. And we receive that through faith. We have been justified through faith. That's the start point. That's where it all begins. Until we know that we're justified through faith, all that he's going to go on to speak about just does not apply. We need to come to that point. Jesus said, you must be born again. We know we must receive a savior. Otherwise, the wrath of God is on us. But if we know that we have been justified through faith, then what? Well, the first thing he says there, we have peace with God. When he says that, he's not talking about a feeling of peace. He does talk about that elsewhere. For example, in Philippians, uh, in Philippians chapter 4, he speaks about how we are to discipline our minds and we're to not be anxious about anything to pray about things. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind, Philippians 4, 7. That is not what he's speaking about here. In Philippians 4, he's speaking about being at peace, knowing a freedom from anxiety because God is in control. We're trusting him and the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. Here, he says, not the peace of God. He says we have peace with God. He's not talking about an absence of anxiety. He's not talking about a, a state of rest in our hearts. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about a relationship that is at peace. This is a fact, not a feeling. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Because previously, there was the opposite of that. Previously, there was a seriously broken relationship. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. God is angry with sin. Had we dared to approach God outside of Christ, what we would have encountered would be the wrath of God. God's blazing holiness that we would, 
suddenly make us realize we've got to get out of here. A total absence of peace. But now we're in Christ, justified through faith, and there's now peace with God. No more hostility. God pronounces us righteous. That's what it says back in chapter 3, verse 21. Now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are covered with the perfection of Christ by faith. All our imperfection covered. And so, however we feel, we have peace with God. Our mind might be in turmoil. All kinds of things can be happening to us in life which are totally confusing. Things that we've never expected. Things that are crushingly disappointing or anything. But we can still have peace with God. We have peace with God. It's not a feeling. It is a permanent fact. We are reconciled with God. Nothing we did could achieve it. And nothing we can do can undo it. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those, all of those words are important. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Jesus means Savior. He's our Savior. It's through him. Through what he has done. He has created this new relationship with our Heavenly Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ has achieved for us peace with God. Our moods, well, we've spoken about that, our moods can vary. When we want to pray, hopefully every day we want to do that, several times through the day, hopefully we want to do that, but our moods can make us feel God's not hearing me. You know how it is? Maybe you don't, but I certainly do. You, you pray, and because you're tired or suffering as I am with this cold, a wave of sympathy, thank you. That'll do. Um, you, know, you just don't feel God's around. You just feel, I want to die. Um, not that I give way to self-pity, and I don't go on about it, but <laughs> to feel blessing when you pray... Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. The fact is, however, the truth is, however I feel, however you feel, you have peace with God. Not, it's not dependent on us, you see. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has achieved it, and it is permanent. We always have peace. We are always reconciled with God. Our minds can be restless or whatever, but we have peace with God. That's a logical conclusion. That's what Paul is looking at here. He stated the truth, then he says, therefore. And now he draws some purely logical conclusions. It's objective truth. It's not what we feel. It's not an experience. So we're not going to say at the end, you know, if you want to want this peace with God, you, you are justified through faith and you want peace with God, come forward, we'll pray for you. No, it's pointless to pray for you because you've got it already. We have it. If we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. It's a fact. Now, we can maybe need peace in our hearts. That's a separate matter. But we have a peaceful relationship with God. He is no longer 
angry with us. He is no longer hostile to us. He has changed us so that we are now his children and we permanently belong. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. He looks at another logical conclusion of what Jesus has done. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've gained access. That word suggests being allowed to enter a place that normally or previously you had no right to enter. You imagine some place you'd, you'd like to go and you can't go, it's, it's restricted access or whatever, and someone says, oh, I know someone who works there, they can get you in. So someone gets you in. And that's the idea here. Someone has got us in. We've, we've been introduced into a sphere that by nature, there's no way we could come into. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have gained access into something. He has brought us in somewhere that he is free to go, and we were not. But we know someone on the inside. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come on in. And what does he bring us into? He's gained, we've gained access by faith, not by anything we've done. In other words, it's simply by believing in him into this grace in which we now stand. We've come into a totally undeserved position where nothing has to be deserved ever again. That's grace. Nothing has to be deserved ever again. It's not about earning. We can't earn it. We come in, we've gained access by faith. Simply by believing in Jesus, we've come into a place of grace. The favor of God. The smile of God. God's generosity. And this position is not for a limited period only. It's permanent. We didn't get ourselves in. We can't get ourselves out. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who brought, brought us in. And that's where we permanently are. That is not saying we come into a place where everything is going to go wonderfully from now on. No, it means that even in the direst circumstances... Even when our world is collapsing around our ears, we've just been made redundant, we're not sure if we can pay the mortgage, someone has just died, we've just been told we've got a serious illness, all of those, any or all of those things, yeah, how do we cope? Well, we're standing in grace. We've got the favor of God. We go through it knowing the grace of God. I was talking with someone just last week. He uh, has a, a business employing some 30 people. The bank are about to withdraw funding from him. His whole world could collapse and he would then have to make some 30 or, four, uh, 30 or more people redundant. He was talking with me about this and the crisis was going to break last Monday. But he's speaking about faith. Speaking about the promises of God. The bank were going to come and examine his books just on Monday, and that, that could be it. But he's in the grace of God. How do you cope when your world collapses around your ears? 
And then the implications. All these people whose livelihood depends on him and the whole thing could collapse. Well, he's in the grace of God and his trust in God. Got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And got peace in his heart. Very concerned about it. He's got peace with God. And he's standing in grace. So God is enabling him to walk through it and will enable him. Whatever crisis you are in, whatever circumstances you are in, whatever uncertainties we face, you know, we've been through a time of recession. And the experts were saying, they're the green shoots of recovery. Now they're saying, oh no, there aren't. And it looks like the recession is going to carry on. Nations in Europe that appear to have come out of recession, oh no, they're back in recession. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if another bank is going to collapse. We don't know the implications of bailing out Greece or any of these other issues. Times of great uncertainty. Undoubtedly, this is going to have a knock-on effect on many of us. But we have peace with God. Stephen, in the New Testament, being stoned, and as the rocks are crashing against him and they're going to kill him, he's got peace with God. And he's standing in grace. I see heaven opened. I see the Son of Man. He's just standing at the right hand of the Father. You don't get a crisis worse than his one. He's got peace with God to go through it. It's not about a charmed life. It's not about everything always going well. It's about a relationship with God that is eternal. In the favor of God through the worst possible circumstances and in the favor of God through the best possible circumstances. Whatever life brings, this is unchanging. And it's a logical deduction. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, what does that lead? What are the implications of that? Well, it means we've got peace with God and we've been introduced into this grace in which we stand and it's grace that is permanent. In John chapter 1, verse 16, John says, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Or it could be translated, and has been elsewhere translated, from the fullness of his grace, we have received grace upon grace. It's never-ending. Never-ending. The favor of God Because we're justified through faith, we've got a right standing with him, and we enjoy his favor. Now, some people say, but this is dangerous. If you say, we didn't earn it, and we can't undo it, therefore we'll always be in the favor of God, then does that mean, doesn't matter how we behave? Is this perhaps open to abuse? Yes, it is open to abuse. And indeed, a right preaching of the grace of God will lead to that thought. Hey, this is risky. Well, Paul addresses that, and we'll see that in some month's time in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's what some people will say. doesn't matter how we behave. He said, by no means. Yes, if we misunderstand it, we say, hey, it doesn't matter. If we understand it properly, we see the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness. This is serious. The wrath of God was then poured out on on Jesus, the Son of God, who took it in my place. Can I then be careless about sin? Can I then say it doesn't matter how I behave when I see what Jesus suffered for me? 
Of course not. And furthermore, because I'm in Christ and alive in him, the grace of God begins to transform my life. The grace of God gives me power to live how I never could live before. It gives me power to conquer things that before I couldn't conquer. The grace of God means, no, of course we don't go on sinning so that grace may increase. But rather, as grace increases, sin can get dealt with. Sin can get conquered. But we stand in grace. We've gained access, introduction, by faith, into this wonderful, unchanging favor of God in which we now stand. When Paul speaks about standing, he normally means taking a stand. Saying, this is is my ground. You plant your foot on it and say, no one's going to shift me. Because all, all sorts of things will try to shift us. Our feelings will try and shift us out of grace. Other people will say things to try and shift us out of grace. Demons will certainly do their utmost to lie to us and shift us off this ground. So we think, no, actually God doesn't like me. God's not likely to answer my prayer. Our moods, our feelings, all of that can shift us from that ground. So we say, no, I'm standing here. We stand in grace. We're not groveling in grace. We're standing in grace. Whatever happens, not because we feel anything, but because we know the truth. Therefore, that's the word, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, these things follow. These things follow logically from the fact of being justified. Now, these are logical implications of being justified through faith, but they also have logical implications. So, as we hear this morning, we have peace with God. We stand in grace. Then you have to ask the question, so what? So what? Could be a good question to examine in your core groups this week. So what? What does it mean? How does it affect Monday morning and through the rest of the week? I have peace with God. I'm standing in grace. How does it affect your life? How does it, what, how does it change your attitudes? What does it do? What are we supposed to do about it? It's got to affect our relationship with God. It's got to affect our confidence when we pray. It's got to affect our behavior. It's got to affect the kind of person we are. These things are life-changing truths, or they can be the equivalent of seeing food on your chin in the mirror and doing nothing about it. So you think, what was it about on Sunday? I can't really remember. Or you say, no, I've heard something that I'm now going to apply. And not just what you're hearing now, what you heard in that prophecy. So what? So what? Do we wait for it to do something? Do we wait to feel something? Or we say, it's true. It's true. Therefore, we act on it. Therefore, we step out. Sometimes we step out in cold blood. We're not feeling anything, but it's true. It's true. In the rest of life, we just act on what is true. We don't wait to feel it. We don't 
feel things. Uh, you, I can say you don't feel it's Monday morning. You might well feel it's Monday morning tomorrow. But you know, we, we, we know when you get up, you know there's things and you don't wait to feel it. You know the facts and you act on it. You know that it's appropriate to eat, that it's appropriate to go to bed at night and so on. We, we act on it. Well, then there are things that God wants us to know that we just act on, that we do it. We step out and say, I believe this to be true. We need to be justified through faith. If we have been, then the news for us is we have peace with God. You can't get more peace or less peace. It's, it's a fact. You can't ask God to increase it. You've got it. No one can lay hands on you for you to receive it. You've got it. And you have been introduced into a new realm, grace. And we stand there. That's where we are. It's permanent, not for a limited period. It's ours forever. Things then follow from that. Either what we believe changes us, or it's irrelevant. We're built on sand. All the truth we hear can either be rock or sand, and the choice is ours. It's not, not a comment on the word, it's a comment on the action. It's so important we get hold of this word, therefore. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do right now, through the rest of the week, through the rest of my life, about truth? It's time for Christians who are governed by their feelings to be transformed into Christians who are governed by the facts. And we live by the facts. Circumstances affect our feelings. They do not change the facts. Let's get hold of them and live in the light of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is rock solid. We thank you that you have declared, you've given this guarantee that heaven and earth can pass away, but your words won't.